0: the fifth. All right. If you got your Bible, grab it and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as you know, we've been going back to the basics. We've been going back to this very foundational teaching, not all the way at the beginning of mankind, but in the second book of the Bible, one thing that, that most of us, if we grew up really even in America, even if we didn't grow up in church, we've at least been familiar with this idea of the Ten Commandments. It's something that's, that's transcendent in our culture. We fight court cases about it, whether it can hang in this courtroom or this uh, government facility. Uh, we, there was a, obviously a huge movie many, many years ago called The Ten Commandments that's been featured in many other movies as well. This is very, very foundational stuff, and yet we've discovered that we may be aware of them, but we don't really know them. And so we're taking some time to go back to the basics and put this stuff in our heart. And so we're quoting them together, saying them out loud uh, every Sunday at the beginning of our service. And we're, we're saying in the NIV, if you know it in another translation, that's fine. I, it's not about the wording of it. It's about the meaning of it. We want to get the heart of what God is saying through these commands. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, would you stand with me one more time? Uh, We are going to, to go over this before we dive in, specifically to commandment number six today. The first commandment, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make idols. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not commit murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again that your word does not return void. Father, we thank you that that every time we open your word, every time we study your word, every time we hide your word in our hearts, you, you do something in us. God, it produces fruit in us. It makes us more like your son, Jesus. And so today, God, we ask, that exactly that would happen, God, that we would not gather in vain, that we would not study your word in vain, God, but that as we do, you would go to work, God, you would do what only you could do and, and begin to do something in our hearts. God, as we talk about a, a command that seems so easy to follow, God, we ask that, that you would help us to get below the surface of it and see what you're really teaching us about the way that we love our neighbor, about the way that we treat one another, God, that we would walk with the very heart of your son, Jesus, God, God, is that we would be people who walk in love. We thank you for what you're going to do through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. 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 You can grab a seat with us this morning. So we're over halfway through the commands. This is the, the the pivot command, right? We went through all the way on the first column, and now we're at the top of the second column, commandment number six. In fact, when I was a kid, I always pictured the Ten Commandments written just like that on the stone tablets, right? That God wrote the first five on the left tablet and the next five on the right tablet, and commandment number six was right there at the top. I discovered that I was actually wrong about that. The Bible tells us how they were written in Exodus 32, 15. It says, Moses turned and went down the mountain. With the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God, the writing was the work of God engraved on the tablets. So I always pictured that they were just on the front, right there in the middle. Uh, Not actually the case, they're written front and back. So I don't know where Commandment 6 actually shows up on the tablets. But the reality is that doesn't matter, right? That's just my own curiosity and my own uh, OCD nature, wanting to know where stuff is. What's important is what the commandment actually teaches us and what it actually is communicating to us. And so we'll read it. Exodus 20 verse 13 says, You shall not murder. And this is where all of us can let out a big, deep breath, right? It's like, hey, finally a commandment that I've got down, right? Like, like the vast majority of us anyways, uh, we, we have not struggled with this. I don't know too many people that write Exodus 2013 on an index card and confess it over themselves every day on the way to work, right? I'm going to stand on the word of God. I'm not going to commit murder today. Maybe some of us have actually had to do that. I don't know. Uh, the reality is this is kind of where most of us relax a little bit. we we may read the Ten Commandments and feel like we're getting beat up a bit, and there's some some stuff in here that's very challenging, some stuff that's very difficult. We get to thou shalt not murder, and for most of us, this isn't one that we're wrestling with on any sort of consistent basis. And yet, God saw fit to include this in his top ten list. As he's communicating to his people and asking something of his people, he felt like this was relevant to all of us. And I believe... That it is. I believe there's a lot more here than meets the eye. So I want to do kind of similar to what we did last week. We're going to talk today about five things we need to know about the sixth commandment. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you five things you can write down that that are kind of embedded here beneath the surface of commandment six that are important for us to understand. Uh, The first one is this. I believe murder is the correct translation, Number one, murder is the correct translation. In other words, uh, many of us learned the Ten Commandments, first heard the Ten Commandments in the King James, right? Uh, the, The King James is kind of transcendent in American culture. For the longest time in American history, the King James was the only widespreadly available translation. And so it's what pops up in, in the movies, right? It's, it's what pops up in the culture is the King James. For many of us, we grew up in churches that taught out of the King James. My parents' generation is pretty much all that they used was the King James. And so many of us have the familiarity with it. And, and the, the reality is there are still things that I love in the King James that like annoy me in any other translation. Like if I hear John 3.16 and it doesn't say only begotten son, I'm like, you're wrong, right? Because that's the way that John 3.16 is supposed to be worded because that's how I memorized it when I was a kid. So for those of you who grew up with King James and you get annoyed when we use something else, I get it. I understand. Uh, But there is a reason why we use something else. We primarily preach here out of the NIV. We are not... um, one translation specific, we don't think there's one translation that has it all right. There are flaws with the NIV. Uh, there are flaws with, with every translation. Um. But we do believe that most of the modern translations are superior to the King James for us for a a couple of reasons. One is this, when we study church history, we discover that the greatest moves of God almost always happen when the word of God is being taught in what we call the vernacular, in the language of the people. That when when the language of the word is different than the way that the people talk, there's, there's a gap that's placed between God and man. But when God's word is given to God's people, People in language that they use, language they understand, that's when we see God move by far the most frequently. And so the King James was written over 400 years ago. It was written in the language of the people of that day. God has done great moves of God through the King James Version. I am grateful for what God's done through the King James, but we don't really speak like that anymore, right? Like the only time we ever say thou shalt or thou shalt not is when we are talking about something out of the King James Bible, right? That's not something that that you don't have a list of rules on your kids, thou shalt go to bed at 8 p.m., right? Like that's just not the way that we communicate in our language, and so we want to communicate in the language of the people. That's one reason we don't use the King James. Another reason we don't use the King James here uh, is 400 years ago, when they translated it, they didn't have The manuscripts, the originals, uh, or or close to the originals of what was actually written in Greek and Hebrew like we have now. In fact, the King James wasn't even translated from the Greek and Hebrew. The King James was translated from what's called the Vulgate, which was a Latin translation. And so because it's a translation of a translation, it has some inconsistencies. It has some gaps in it. If you read the King James and that is your Bible and that's what you study... I'm don't think i not here to tell you to go burn your King James Bible. I still have a King James Bible. I still read from it occasionally. I think there's value in the King James Bible. Um, I do think there's some things that we can get better with some of the, the translations that use earlier manuscripts uh, that are translated directly from Greek and Hebrew, that it brings more clarity and more understanding. So I, I just want to address that up front. This is one area that I think the King James doesn't give us the best possible translation. If you learned the Ten Commandments in the King James, you know that it doesn't say thou shalt not murder, it says thou shalt not kill. And that one little word has massively different implications. In fact, the King James translation of this has been used many times down through history to prove that the Bible contradicts itself. Because, well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill, but here we see the Israelites killing in war. Here we see the death penalty being used. Here we see God allowing them to to kill in self-defense. And so it's been used many times to say that the Bible is contradictory. Well, we know the Bible is never contradictory. God himself is never contradictory to himself. And so the word in the Hebrew that was translated as kill can also be translated as murder. And I think in this instance, murder is the far superior translation murder carries with it the implication of malice that you are desiring to inflict pain, you are desiring to take life, you are desiring to 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 bring revenge or punishment upon someone that there's something beneath the surface of what's happening. The reality is yes, there are times when God has allowed and sometimes even sanctioned or called for death. Uh, there are times where, where God has ordained and administered the death penalty, and that can be uncomfortable for us to read about and for us to, to wrestle with. Uh, but the, the truth is, yes, God has done that. Uh, and so here's where this can get really dangerous. A lot of times I've, I've met with guys who were veterans. They went off and fought in war, and they come back, and they are racked with guilt because of the things that they've seen and the things that they've done. Uh, and, and many times, yes, there are soldiers who have done things they weren't supposed to do. There are soldiers who have done some evil things. There are things that America has done that we shouldn't have been engaged with. And when that's the case, we encourage people, man, repent. Give it to God and we serve a God who forgives. But, but many times people are racked with guilt for things that they shouldn't, feel guilty about. They were defending themselves, they were defending others, they were protecting uh, something that God had called them to protect, and so uh, I think it's important for us to get this translation right. It may seem insignificant, it may not seem that big of a deal, the difference between kill and murder, but I think it's important for us to understand that the Bible calls us not to murder, while there are some times where killing will be justified. Number two, murder was punishable by death. In fact, long before God gave the Ten Commandments, we're going to find in the law many times in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, where, where God is going to ordain an eye for an eye. If you take a life, your life is going to be taken. But this actual command existed, this principle existed long before the law, long before there were even a Jewish people. If we go back to the days of Noah... You guys know the story of Noah, right? This man is called to build a boat, and he brings all these animals in the boat, and we teach it as this, like, cutesy kid story. Oh, look, there was two alligators, and they didn't bite anybody, right? Well, this is something that actually happened because God was judging the earth. This was God's wrath being poured out against sin. And after Noah gets out of the ark, after the, the rain subsides and the flood subsides, they get out of the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah. actually what we know as the second covenant in scripture. The first was the covenant with Adam. So God, every time there's a new covenant in scripture, God raises the bar. Every new covenant, God asks for a little bit more. He, he, He instructs a little bit more. He illuminates a little bit more. So the second scriptural covenant is God's covenant with Noah. And as part of the covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, 6 says this, says whoever sheds human blood by humans, shall their blood be shed. He says, look, this is the reality. If you take life, Your life is going to be taken, that we are ordaining. If you are murdering, then your life is going to be taken as well. So this goes back almost all the way to the beginning, back to the covenant with Noah. The third thing to know here is the sixth command is a warning against violence. Sticking with the conversation about Noah, we find in in the story of Noah, God's anger, God's wrath against the violence of humanity. Uh, in fact, you probably know that God sent the flood because humanity was unrighteous, because humanity was wicked, because they couldn't find any righteous people except Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, right? Eight people on planet Earth was it. The only ones that God could find who would be willing to obey him, be willing to follow him. But did you know specifically why God's wrath burned so hard against humanity in that generation? Genesis six eleven tells us. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had begun, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. God looked down, and all he had created, in fact, elsewhere in the story, it tells us that God saw what was happening, and he regretted creating mankind. You ever had a moment with your kids where you, like, regretted that they were even born? Like, that's, that's a heavy moment, right? Uh, that, that, that's a serious thing when it gets to that point. God looked at humanity and said, I wish you didn't even exist. Why? Because people were hurting people. Because violence reigned throughout the earth and God's heart is not for us to harm each other. God's heart is not for us to be violent against each other. And this is a problem for us because we live in a culture that's fascinated with violence. We live in a a culture that is saturated with murder. Whether we look at podcasts or movies or Netflix documentaries or, or, or whatever medium it happens to be. Murder is transcendent in our culture. It's all over the place. And what we actually discover is is studies show that by the time a kid's around 8 to 10 years old, on average, they've seen about 8,000 murders take place. By the time they're 18 years old, on average, they've seen about 200,000 murders take place. That means in the teenage years, kids are seeing over 190,000 murders on average. Why? Because it's everywhere in our culture. And the reality is we can watch murder and most of us don't see murder and go out and commit murder, right? Most of us, we're, we're not uh, walking that out ourselves. Video games, of course, is another huge one, right? Where, where there's just people man, dropping right and left, bodies being taken out. But, but this command is not just telling us not to murder, it's teaching us God's desire for his people not to be violent, that, that we would not walk in this, we would not see this. And so what we see, what we put into us, what we experience through movies, through video games, through, through media of whatever source, it gets into us and affects us. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The reality is the stuff that we watch matters. And I'm not saying just because you watch an episode of Snapped or, or just because you play Call of Duty or, or just because you watch a, a Ted Bundy documentary, right, that, that all of a sudden you've been written out of the promises of God. I'm not saying that at all. I think there's a, there's a time and a place where that stuff can be illuminative and it can be informative. But I am saying this. we got to be careful how much of that we're putting into ourselves. Man, we, we don't realize what it does to us, the violence that seeps in to ourselves as we soak our minds in stuff that's contrary to who God is, that's contrary to God's heart for humanity. So being obedient to commandment six is not simply avoiding physically killing someone, but it's guarding against violence in our own lives. Fourth thing I want you to see is that Jesus raises the bar. I told you, every time there's a new covenant in Scripture, the bar gets raised. Every time God makes a new covenant with man, he takes the bar a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Well, Jesus brings the bar to a whole new level. And Jesus actually specifically addresses this command. In that same conversation, the Sermon on the Mount, one chapter before what we just read about the eyes, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5.21. He says, "'You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, "'You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment.'" But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, as answerable to the court. And we don't know what that word actually translates to, so it's still just in there as raka. So you can insert your own interpretation there. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's Jesus doing? He's raising the bar significantly, right? He says, You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And we all breathe. Like, all right, cool, I'm good. I got that one. Check. Got that one down, Jesus. I got one out of ten. Hallelujah, right? And Jesus says, But I'm telling you, don't hate your brother or sister. Don't have anger towards your brother or sister in your heart. Don't put your brother or sister down. Now it's like Darn it, 0 for 10, right? Right back to whiffing one more time. Like, we, we, we miss it on this. All of us fall short in this area. And so the command is teaching us, man, that the bar is being raised. Jesus is taking it to a new level. We see Jesus do this time and time again in the New Testament. In fact, next week, I'll just give you a little sneak preview. We're going to talk about commandment seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar on that one too. Jesus says, I'm not just telling you not to cheat on your spouse. I'm telling you not to even lust after someone that's not your spouse in your heart. See, Jesus takes it from the outward expression to the inward heart. He says, I'm not just telling you not to take somebody's life. I'm telling you not to wish that they were dead. I'm not just telling you not to take someone's life. I'm telling you not to actively celebrate when bad things happen to them. You know what I'm talking about? Man, when you get that news about that person that you think made such bad decisions or that ex or whatever, and it's like, I knew she was gonna regret leaving me, right? And you kind of celebrate a little bit. And he's saying, no, that's not my heart. My heart is not to see them hurt. My heart is not to see them harmed. My heart is for the best for them. So Jesus again and again raises the bar. And that brings us to, I think the most important application for us from this command, obviously, please don't go out and murder anybody. When I say the most important application, don't be like, okay, I'm off the hook, I can go kill. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, God's getting not just to the outward expression, he's getting to the heart. And so point number five is this, that people matter to God. People matter to God. In fact, this whole collection of commands isn't interesting that God only gives us four commands about our walk with him, but he gives us six commands about our walk with each other. Why do you think God did that? Because he knew that every day we're going to be dealing with each other, right? He he knew that he had placed us in the midst of broken, fallen humanity and that we are broken and fallen ourselves. And so it's going to be a whole lot harder for us to get this right in regards to each other than it's going to be for us to get it right in regards to him. But he says the evidence, the fruit of my love for him is my love for others. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to love my people, right? You're going to be filled with love. You're going to walk in love. In fact, Genesis 9, 6, back in the covenant with Noah, says whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. But it doesn't stop there. It actually tells us why. It says, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Why is murder so so forbidden by God? Because when you take somebody's life, you are harming his creation. Not just his creation, but someone he's sealed with the, the very image of God. He's placed something special in us. You, you've heard me say before in the past that people are the cherry on top of God's creation. Right? That, that of all creation and everything God made was good. Everything God made was amazing. And when I get out in creation, I, 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 man, I marvel at what he's done. But God says out of all the stuff I've made, nothing is as important as humanity. Nothing is as important as mankind, that mankind is designed to reflect my glory in all of creation. And so when we harm mankind, we are harming something that matters to God. We are harming something that that has been marked with his image. When we shed the blood of human beings, when we attack another person, what we're doing is we're attacking the image of God. And Jesus says, not just when we kill them, but when we hate them. In fact, in that same Sermon on the Mount, he goes on to say some crazy stuff, some revolutionary stuff that nobody before in history had ever even fathomed, let alone started to teach. But he says crazy stuff like love your enemies. He says crazy things like pray for the people that persecute you. He says, my church is going to be marked different. All of humanity is marked by an eye for an eye. All of humanity is marked by treating each other by the way that they deserve to be treated, but not my kids, not my people. You're going to treat people different. You're going to treat people the way that I treat them. You're going to look at them and see some dignity in them when nobody else sees it. You're going to look at them and see a calling on them when nobody else sees it. You're going to look at them and see someone that Jesus died for. And so he calls us to treat people so much differently. You see, this command is best obeyed not by this negative action of don't murder anybody. It's best obeyed by the positive action of walk in love towards the people I made. And that's a much higher bar, isn't it? That's a much more difficult place for us to be, a much higher place for us to strive for. But Jesus says, right, second command, okay, man, that's just as important as how you love me, is that you love one another, your neighbor, as you love yourself. So here's the application this week, guys. Ezekiel talks about how God will take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In other words, all of us get hard-hearted. At the moment of salvation, we exchange our very hard heart, our heart that is hardened towards God, and He gives us a, a soft heart, a heart of flesh that can now breathe and, and connect with him and know Him. But I believe God does that exchange many times, because I believe there's pieces of my heart that are still hardened. There's pieces of my heart that I allow to get hardened, and those pieces, many times have names. Maybe that name is the name of somebody you work with. Maybe it's the name of a boss a coworker, a neighbor, an ex. Maybe it's the name of somebody you have to have Thanksgiving dinner with this week. And you are dreading this thing that's supposed to be a celebration of God's goodness because you're gonna to have to sit at the table with this person who's probably gonna be drunk or this person who, who abused you or mistreated you in the past, or this person who's not going to be able to shut up about their politics, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the difficulty and the challenge of loving the people who are closest to us is sometimes the hardest. But God says, I know you can do it. Why wasn't this in the Ten Commandments? Why did it not happen until Jesus came around? See, the bar had to be lower because we didn't have the Holy Spirit. You see, I can't love others the way that God loves them without his help. I can't do it. I I can hopefully not murder, right? I can hopefully live up to that in my own strength. But in order to actually love people the way that God loves them, in order to not hate people, in order to quit putting others down, that only happens as a work of the Spirit of God inside of me. And so Jesus comes along and he raises the bar because he knew he was about to die and he was about to send his spirit to live in his people and empower them to start walking this out. So what's the hard spot in your heart? What's the name on it? Maybe for some of us, it's not just the hard spot. My, you, you're going to have to be Santa Claus. You're going to have to make a list and check it twice, right? Because there's a whole lot of hard spots. There's a whole lot of people that have hurt you. There's a whole lot of people that you have some bitterness and some unforgiveness against. There's a whole lot of people that cut you off on Goodman Road or did you wrong at work or whatever that reason is that that you've got this hatred towards them. You've got this enmity towards them. Like I said, a, a really good way to test if you've forgiven somebody, if you've put something in the past, is when you find out something good happened to them, are you upset? Or you find out something bad happened to them, are you happy? If that's the case, you haven't forgiven them. You're not walking in love towards them, man, when when we want bad things to happen to other people. And the only way to get there, the only way to have that heart that Jesus has is is to ask for a heart transplant. Just like Ezekiel, he says, I'm gonna take your heart of stone and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. It's like, okay, God, you've done that. You've saved me and I thank you for that. But here's this piece of my heart that's stony. Here's this piece of my heart that's hard. And this piece is named uncle so-and-so. Right, the, the, This piece is named neighbor so-and-so. It's named coworker so so-and-so. And God, I need you to soften this heart. I need you to soften my heart towards this person who, 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 maybe it's an ex who doesn't even show up in their kids' lives. And that's a really good reason to not like somebody. When you see somebody who's, who, who's a deadbeat as a parent, it gets really easy for the flesh and me to rise up against people like that. But you know what? God died for that person too. Jesus died for that deadbeat dad, for for that distant mom. And he says, I'm calling you to love them. Doesn't mean that you've got to go get back with them, right? Doesn't mean that you've got to like invite them over for Thanksgiving and now you're going to be best friends again. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes you got to love people from a distance. Praise God, sometimes that's a good thing. And we can do that. What I'm talking about is your heart. What is your heart towards that person? What what, what is your feeling towards that person? If it's anything less than God's heart, then we got room for improvement. Then he's calling us and inviting us to something better. Why? Because people matter to God. People that worship different, people that vote different, people that live different, people that act different. All of those people matter to God just as much as I do. God looks at me and he says, "Yeah, I know that it might be hard for you to love that person because of their flaws, because of their brokenness, because of all the pain that they've inflicted." but Troy, let me remind you some of the pain that you've caused. Let me remind you some of the times when you've been unfaithful. Let me remind you some of the, the people that you've mistreated, and despite all that, I sent my son Jesus to die. For Despite all that, I adopted you and I brought you into my family. Despite knowing you were going to fail in this area many times after I saved you, I saved you anyway. I called you anyway. I gave you a purpose. I gave you an opportunity to play a part in my story anyway. So God doesn't give us as believers the option of walking in unforgiveness. He doesn't give us the option of writing people off. He says, I'm calling you to love because people matter to me. So as we close, would you stand with me today, church? I'm going to ask you to do this as we stand. I'm going to pray, but as I pray, I want you to pray. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to start examining your heart. Those cold, dark, distant corners of your heart. Maybe you already know some names. Maybe it's, it's all over you, man. I know exactly who I need to see my heart change towards maybe maybe you don't have anybody on your mind yet and I want you to start inviting God to to show you if it's somebody in your family somebody you work with somebody who's a an enemy somebody who lied about you gossiped about you whatever it might be but if there's something there where your heart is growing hard and cold about someone made in God's image, first we're going to ask God show us then we're going to ask God for this heart transplant God here's the stony part of my heart Maybe it's called dad. Maybe it's called mom. Maybe it's brother or sister. Maybe it's ex, so-and-so. I don't know. But give him that stony part of your heart and ask him to breathe on it. Ask him to to, to switch with you, to trade with you so he'd give you his heart for that individual, that that you would have the same love for that person that God does. And again, that doesn't mean that you've got to go, man, remarry somebody. It doesn't mean that you've got to go get abused by somebody again. That's not what I'm saying. Boundaries can be healthy and they can be good. But what's your heart towards them? Can you you honestly pray for their best? Can you pray that God saves them if they're far from him? Can can you believe for that? See, the book of Jonah is a story all about somebody whose heart was hardened towards a group of people. He was sent to the Ninevites to tell them God would forgive them if they repented and said, I don't want them to be forgiven. I don't want them to get right with God because they deserve God's wrath. And the reality is that person who you got a stony heart towards, they deserve God's wrath. You're right. So do I. And yet God has chosen to pour out his wrath for me on his son, Jesus. And because of that, my penalty is paid. And he's done the same thing for that person, whatever that corner of your heart is, whatever that name is in your heart. So we're going to offer it to God.